You're listening to The Creation Academy, a weekly podcast defending the truth of God's Word in biblical creation science. I'm your host, Steve Schramm, and on this week's lesson, we're talking about Adam, the New Testament, and the church. Where did the church uh, place Adam in their theology, in their teaching? Uh, where did the New Testament writers, in the context of their culture, um, place him? Uh, when Paul talked about Adam, uh, was he working from the premise that Adam was a historical figure, a, a real person, a literal person who happened in the actual history of the earth? Yes, uh, he did treat him that way, and that is kind of what we're going to examine today and get a better look at. So I'm excited to go through that. Now, this is the third lesson in our series, The Biblical Origin of Humanity. We are working through a book uh, compiled and edited by Dr. Terry Mortensen. It's called Searching for Adam, Genesis, and the Truth About Man's Origin. Searching for Adam, Genesis, and the Truth About Man's Origin. You can get it on Amazon. I believe it's $5.99 right now for the Kindle version. I would go grab that uh, and catch back up. We're only three episodes into this thing, and I'm really excited about this study so far. Um, it was a good book to read. It was a fun book to read, and this study has just been uh, enlightening for me, eye-opening for me, uh, and just plain old fun. I mean, it's, it's been fun to record, fun to go through, uh, fun to look at. Of course, we can't go through everything. I mean, that's the thing. I, I can't just read the book right to you. Um, and so you're going to want to go get that for yourself and take a look at what it has to say, because it, unfortunately, I do have to skip over a lot of what is in the book uh, for time reasons, for copyright reasons, for all kinds of reasons. So you want to go get that for yourself so you can not only read along and study along as you listen to the podcast, but just so you can gain a better understanding of the author's arguments as a whole. Now, I want you to keep in mind that while these first few chapters are kind of laying the, the biblical uh, framework, uh, we've got quite a few chapters to go through, and this is going to be a 13-week series, all told, uh, if I'm able to stay on the schedule that I had planned on. And by doing that, um, we're going to be going through many, many more lines of evidence for a historical Adam. I mean, we're going to be touching genetics, we're going to be touching uh, just uh, anthropology, we're, we're going to be going all over the place. This is uh, much more than just a biblical study, but these first uh, few um, lessons are going to be dealing with it from a biblical perspective for obvious reasons, right? I mean, we want to know what our source has to say about it. The Bible is the ultimate source of truth. It's the ultimate source of knowledge, uh, and that's no different concerning origins. And so we want to know what the Bible has to say about it before we can go out and do research from a scientific perspective or from even a historical perspective. We want to make sure that whatever we find lines up with the Bible, because if what we find does not line up with the Bible, well, then we got problems either with uh, our interpretation of the Bible or we've got uh, problems with the Bible being true at all. Now, fortunately, that's not what we find. Uh, God's Word does match God's world. Uh, and vice versa. But we have to go through and, and we have to dig into this stuff. And the main thing is we want you to understand it. When somebody challenges you in this day where even many uh, in the church are accepting evolution, we need to be able to articulate our position and defend our position. That is the project of apologetics, to be able to defend our position, to give a reason for the hope that is within us. 
and to do so with meekness and fear, with gentleness and, and respect. Uh, so we need to be able to highlight those things when we are in conversations with those who don't believe as we do. So we're going to go ahead and get uh, dive in for this week. Got a lot of ground to cover. Again, we're covering two chapters of the book. We're talking about the New Testament and the church and their views on Adam. Now, this first one that we're going to look at is the New Testament, the New Testament. And this is, of course, chapter number two in the book, Searching for Adam. Now, this particular chapter is written by uh, David A. Croteau, and he is a Ph.D. from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he is also the professor of New Testament and Greek at Columbia International University. Now, uh, it was co-authored by uh, his associate there, uh, Dr. Michael P. Naylor, and he is a Ph.D. from uh, the University of Edinburgh in New Testament, and he is the associate professor of Bible in the College of Arts and Sciences, uh, also there at Columbia International University. So these are some well-credentialed guys. Uh, they are teachers of this stuff day in and day out, and so it's really going to be interesting to see what they have to say. And let me tell you, these were some thorough, thorough chapters. I mean, when I say I had to skip a bunch and just make short notes on things, I mean, I really did. There is, I mean, there are things where I'm just going to make a short comment, maybe a sentence or something like that. But in the book, there's two or three pages dedicated to it. So there's really a lot of good information there. I, I can't beat that drum loud enough. Go buy the book. It'll take some time to go through, but it is worth the read. I can assure you. All right, so let's go ahead and dive in. We're going to first take a look at the cultural context of the New Testament. You know, what about outside of the Bible in the New Testament? Uh, did, did, did people have a, a solid understanding of the history of the world that confirms what the Bible tells about it? All right, uh, so let's take a look at a few of those. And we're going to start out with a quote by the author. He said, those who believe in a historical Adam have been accused of reading back into the New Testament authors certain convictions about Adam that are driven by our own view of Genesis rather than the biblical author's view. This assertion can be helpfully addressed by considering views of other Jewish authors around the time of the New Testament. An examination of several other Jewish writings of this day outside of Scripture indicates that this interpretation of Adam in the fall was not unique to the Christian interpretation found in the New Testament. Now, I should point out that uh, this, um, uh, this particular section is not going to offer any counter evidence. Um, I think we are smart enough to know that there are always people who disagree with our view. All right. So I'm sure there are going to be others from around that same time who take a different take on Adam and um, on the historical view of origins. Um, but the point is to highlight the fact that there are those who hold this same view and that it is not just us reading back what we would like to see into uh, the New Testament uh, text. So that's the, the, the project here is to go in and look at what other writers have said in support of this view, all while understanding that there were some, obviously, who uh, were not in full support of it. All right, let's look at a book called For Ezra. For Ezra. All right, the book For Ezra, written after AD 70, addresses the problem of Adam, transgression, and death. O sovereign Lord, did you not speak at the beginning when you formed the dust and gave it you, Adam, a lifeless body? 
Yet he was the workmanship of your hands, and you breathed into him the breath of life. And he was made alive in your presence, and you led him into the garden, which your right hand had planted before the earth appeared. And you laid him upon him one commandment of yours, but he transgressed it, and immediately you appointed death for him and his descendants. And that's from 4 Ezra 3, 4 through 7. Finally, the author later laments, This is my first and last word. It would have been better if the earth had not produced Adam, or else, when it produced him, had restrained him from sinning. What good is it to all they that live in sorrow now and expect punishment after death? Oh, Adam, what have you done? For though it was you who sinned, the fall was not yours alone, but ours also, who are your descendants. 4 Ezra 7, 116 through 119. The author of 4 Ezra discusses Adam in a very similar way to Paul. He appears to view Adam as a historical figure and uses this conclusion as the basis for his argument and lament. So we see this author of uh, For Ezra quite obviously saw Adam as the historical figure that the New Testament writers uh, tend to see him as, as we'll see here in just a few moments. To run through a couple other quick examples, uh, Sirach 33.10 affirms the creation of Adam from the earth. Josephus, in his discourse concerning nature, describes the creation of Adam from the dust of the earth. So, uh, the author writes, in, in 4 Ezra and Second uh, Baruch, the connection is made between Adam's actions and the sin and death and corruption that followed, or the relationship between Adam and the human race. Examples from Tobit, Sirach, and Josephus likewise indicate an affirmation of Adam as a historical Person. Now, as I mentioned earlier, uh, these are the views that are in support, or the writers that are in support of the historical view uh, that the book argues for. And so those arguments are laid out. Now, there were other views during that time, of course, and the author does take just a moment to, to highlight a couple of those. Um, were there other options available, uh, the author writes, other than seeing Genesis as depicting a historical Adam? The answer is admittedly yes. The author, uh, Philo of Alexandria, provides a good example of this. Philo, in approaching the text in an allegorical fashion, under the influence of Platonic tradition, sees the narrative as representative of the subjugation of the reason to the senses, leading to a sort of slavery. Peter Enns argues that Paul was common, uh, accommodating his interpretation. In Enns' view, this is a literary appeal rather than an appeal to history. But Paul's interpretation of Genesis 1 through 3 was an interpretation available in his day, but was not the only interpretation of Genesis. In other words, given the choice of interpreting Adam as historical or as non-historical, Paul interprets Adam as a historical person, as will be shown in just a moment, responsible for the entrance of sin and death into the world. So arguably, this is actually a good news. Uh, because the fact that there are some other writers here as well saying that this is not uh, the correct interpretation, but that we're uh, living at the same exact time, shows that Paul had options on the table. Paul did not just have to write um, the way that he wrote by default. Uh, even in the midst of opposition, he had a choice. Uh, he decided that the way that Adam ought to be portrayed in the New Testament, uh, and of course, 
you know, the authorship of the Holy Spirit writing. I mean, Paul understood that um, that his writings were going to be read uh, by Christians. I mean, I think Paul, to a certain degree, knew what he was doing here. And so he decided that it was important that we view Adam as a historical figure. That's the tradition that had been passed down to him, uh, and that is what he learned, and so that is what he passed on to others. Even though he had a choice, there were clearly others uh, in that time period, um, even living before Christ, I believe Philo was before Christ, um, uh, just before and around that same time period. Okay, and so there were certainly other choices, but Paul chose the historical route. That's how he interpreted uh, Adam, and so that is going to be really, really important as we look over the next few passages. All right, let's look at some major New Testament passages uh, that we're going to dial into with a pretty hard lens uh, because they are admittedly the two that most clearly seem to argue for historical Adam from Paul's perspective. Okay, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 15 and of course Romans 5, two very, very well-known passages to anybody familiar with this debate. And we're going to look at and kind of get a breakdown. And it's unfortunate that even as much as we're going to cover, um, I'm telling you, there were still pages more of information uh, to deal with on just these two portions of Scripture that the author comments on. So there's a lot here. 1 Corinthians 15, let's look at that. Now, it contains the first reference to Adam in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 22, and I'm reading from the King James Version, says, But now is Christ risen from the dead, and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Now the author comments here that Paul uses the generic term for man, anthropos, as well as the personal name, Adam. It is through a human being that death has come, and is specifically in Adam that all die. The identification of the man through whom the death has come, Adam, uh, with Adam, excuse me, reflects the narrative in Genesis 2 through 3 and is consistent with the statement Paul will make later in 1545. Paul's point that in all is that in all humanity, in solidarity with Adam, is subject to death, and that those in solidarity with Christ by faith experience the effects of his resurrection from the dead. Uh, now, again, if we uh, take these passages and we interpret them in a way that is uh, simply allegorical, well, number one, that's going to be really hard to do with this passage. Um, it certainly has the markers of history, especially with the fact that Adam is using uh, the generic term and the personal name Adam. All right, he's using both of those together, and he's signifying that through that first human being who was Adam, death has come. Now, there's really no reason to take this, uh, you know, in hermeneutics, if the plain sense makes good sense, seek no other sense at all, all right? Uh, there's no reason that we should assume that this is an um, allegorical statement of any kind. This is referring to the real Adam. Adam uh, is responsible for sin, and that is where the theological weight is placed. I mean, the burden of sin is placed right there and followed down through this line, as we saw that even some uh, extra-biblical writers fully acknowledge, all right? So uh, this first man, Adam, is why death came into 
the world. And it's very important that if we're going to be saved from ourselves, saved from the sin and from the death that we brought into the world on ourselves, that we are going to need a redemption, a savior. And that is what Jesus Christ came to do, to be that last Adam. All right. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 15, 45. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. Paul's quotation of Genesis 2-7 is notable for two reasons. First, Paul includes the adjective first, protos. The inclusion of this adjective anticipates contrast with Christ, the last Adam, in the second part of 1 Corinthians 15-45, and can also be understood as addressing the first man in the Genesis narrative. Second, Paul includes both the Greek noun man, anthropos, and the personal name for Adam. Adam. In doing so, Paul has removed potential ambiguity from the Hebrew text and has identified the first man with Adam. All right, so so this is a, a pretty clear um, understanding. The, the author says in 1 Corinthians 15, it is clear that Paul articulates the significance of Christ's work using the historical man Adam as the point of contrast. For Paul, Adam is not merely a symbol or a figure to contrast with Christ but also the explanation for the predicament faced by all who follow um, Adam. So understand what that last um, sentence there is is trying to say. Uh, Paul did not simply treat this as some kind of comparison um, with a symbolic figure. That's not the type of language that was used. There's no symbolic symbolism here. Um, or um, allegorical interpretation going going on here. It's it's not that kind of language. It's historical language. What we're dealing with is a predicament that Adam brought into the world, sin and death. It's an actual condition, and it's not describing the fact that this condition exists and uh, this person in biblical history, this allegorical person in biblical history just simply represents the sin and the death of all mankind. It's contrasting the fact that Adam got us into this mess and saying, look, this is why you need a savior. This is why you need Christ because Adam got us into this mess a few thousand years ago and we need somebody to take care of it for us. All right. And I'm being kind of facetious here, but that's exactly what was going on here. All right. So the symbolism uh, is non-existent here. It's just simply tying back a historical event that happened in the past with the uh, coming of Christ and his sacrifice that he made for us. Adam is a historical figure, and he must be in order for the gospel to work here. D.A. Carson argues, the point of the argument is not simply that Christ has introduced a new historical factor into the status quo of universal sin, but that just as all death can trace its roots back to one man, so all resurrection from the dead can trace its roots back to one man. Contextually, Paul's argument for the resurrection of Christ's people depends on the resurrection of Christ, and the structure of this resurrection argument depends on the parallel structure, uh, viz. that all that participate in death because of the introduction of Adam, of death, as a kind of its first fruits. All right, so uh, the first fruits of Adam was death, but the first fruits of Christ is resurrection and life. And that is what we Christians can rejoice in. We can rejoice in the fact that even though one man messed us up really bad a long time ago, 
one man came and set us on the path to redemption and gave us a savior. It's just incredible. It's incredible. And to mar that teaching, to mar that theology, and to mar that history, uh, to me, is a sheer tragedy. Let's take a look at Romans 5. Romans 5, 12 through 14 says this, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. All right, now the author comments here. Paul begins by stating in verse 12 that sin came into the world through one man, and death came about as a result of sin. In 1 Corinthians 15, 21-22, Paul drew the connection between death and the man, Adam. Here, the apostle identifies the connection between sin and death. Now, this is pretty significant, right? I mean, this is the fact that death passed upon all men and passed into the world because of sin. But, you know, here's what I find interesting. Um, and again, I'm not a Greek and Hebrew scholar, okay? Uh, so that's not my background. But it's interesting that the way this is phrased uh, in, in the English translation I read, which is the King James Version, it says that sin entered into the world and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men. You know, death passed upon all men. But before that, it says death by sin. So this seems like a clear argument to me that death as a whole was not in the world before sin. And this is uh, quite a, a big area of debate uh, between uh, young earth and, and old earth theories in general. But a uh, point being here it, that it looks like the way that this is worded, at least in the translation I read, w would seem to um, allude to the fact that, that death is the result of sin. Of course, I believe that's consistent with other Bible teaching too, but this seems to be a pretty clear place where it is just stated outright, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men. Uh, but I don't think that has to mean uh, to the exclusion of men. Uh, that's just my thoughts there, but something I think we should uh, certainly think about. All right, I'm reading again. Paul uses several words to describe the actions of Adam, sin, transgression, and trespass. The act on Adam's part has resulted in death, verses 12, 15, and 17, and condemnation, verses 16 and 18, for all men. Paul is engaging the narrative in Genesis 3 as an explanation for the universal problem of sin and death in the human race. So, these uh, words that are, are used by Adam to... Uh, to help us to under, or excuse me, by Paul rather, to help us to to understand uh, this position. And Adam gives a really good uh, apologetic for the fact that Adam is a historical person. Uh, the sin that Adam committed resulted in death. And uh, later, of course, the condemnation for all men. So, so Paul is using the narrative in Genesis 3 to fuel his explanation here uh, about the history of the world. And it's just clear in these passages that Paul is talking about a historical event that at one point in the past, death was brought into the world. 
by Adam, okay, uh, by a historical Adam. It's not making reference to the fact that there's sin and death in the world. And so here is a symbolic understanding of why this could be. It's not talking about that at all. What it's actually doing is showing that Adam, the man Adam, is responsible for sin and for death without uh, the fall, without what actually happened in real history with Adam and Eve, there would not be sin and death in the world, and we wouldn't even be here to talk about it probably. All right? So um, this is key. This is paramount to the fact of why we needed a Savior. So the author summarizes, by tracing the storyline in this passage, the following can be seen. Sin and death entered the world as a result of Adam's transgression, sin, and trespass. The fact that sin came into the world indicates that sin was not present in the world prior to this act. From this time on, too, sin and death continues, even though human beings are not breaking the law as the law was not given until the time of Moses. Three, the law was given, which served to increase the trespass rather than to deal fully and finally with the problem of sin. And four, Christ was entered into the world through his obedience and his righteousness. And he has provided righteousness and life to all who are in him. So if you look at that passage as a whole, that is the storyline. And that is the Christian story. I mean, that is it. Adam brought sin and death into the world, and Christ brought life. The law served as our schoolmaster, so we could have a magnifying glass on us, and we could see what was wrong with us, why we needed a Savior in the first place, and that goes back to the sin of Adam. And the author says it can be deduced then that Paul presents Adam as a historical figure whose disobedience to God's command resulted in the entrance of sin and death into the world. Major objections to a historical Adam in these passages. Objection one, in Paul's theology, the starting point is Christ, not Adam. Has that not driven his theology rather than the Old Testament text itself? Now, that's an interesting question. Um, so, uh, what exactly did Paul, what was Paul's motivations here? And the author says that as Paul deals with the Old Testament, he approaches it not simply as a set of proof texts, to be mined, rather he attempts to demonstrate that the gospel, God's work in Christ, provides the proper interpretation of the New Testament or of the Old Testament. Paul's discussion of Abraham in Romans 4, for example, can be seen as demonstrating this very thing. The language of Genesis 15:6 provides uh, simply not a helpful analogy or proof text for Paul. Instead, it demonstrates the whole consistency between the Old Testament and the gospel concerning the relationship of faith, works, circumcision, promise, and law. So it, it can kind of be treated the same way. Uh, it's not as a, as a proof text, but it's actually a consistency of the gospel itself uh, between the Old Testament and New Testament uh, narratives. And Paul, said, uh, is do, uh, Paul is doing the same thing here in Romans 5, 12 uh, through 21. The recognition of Jesus as Messiah and the effects of his death and resurrection caused Paul to think more carefully about the problem addressed by Jesus' actions. So for Paul, there is coherence between the Old Testament and God's work in Christ, and the actions taken by Christ address the very real problem of sin and death, which entered the world through the actions of Adam. 
All right. The second objection is, um, is Paul not merely accommodating the view of his day? Uh, Dennis Lamoureux of Biologos argues that even though Paul refers to a historical Adam, two reasons suggest that, Christ, uh, that Christians do not have to take this at face value. First, that every first century Jew believed this, suggesting Paul was simply only reflecting the due of his view of his day. Second, that he says if Christians accept Paul's view of Adam, they must accept Paul's view of a three-tier universe as depicted in Philippians 2.10. Lamoureux uh, cites Collins, Francis Collins that is, saying he provides solid evidence. But Collins doesn't give enough of a treatment of Philo, uh, as will be discussed in this chapter. Jewish thought was more diverse than Collins asserts, and Paul's line of interpretation is in keeping with the dominant, though not exclusive, view of the day. Now, concerning the three-tiered claim, uh, which is, uh, by the way, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, found in Philippians 2.10, uh, the author says that this is really an elaboration of the word every, uh, or pas. The word, uh, the whole point, is the universal homage being given to Christ. To take Paul's words in this presumed hymn uh, in an overly literal way is unfair to Paul. And that's a good point. It's uh, talking to the fact that uh, everything is being given to Christ in that chapter. And so it's just taking it out of context, uh, really, to say that this is how we had to view uh, the the universe. All right. Um, there may have been some who believed in that three-tiered system. I'm sure there were plenty. Uh, but Paul not uh, need not necessarily be one of them, uh, based on what we find in the text, all right? Now, the third objection, does our ongoing experience with sin really necessitate a historical Adam? Isn't Adam simply an analogy of the problem of individual sin? Doesn't Paul just provide a literary pattern illustrating the point that sin leads to consequences? And the author, uh, their response to that is simply, in individual human experience, the pattern of Adam can be seen, temptation, sin, and consequences. Some have suggested that in 1 John 2.16, the apostle may be alluding to this pattern present in Genesis 3. Although this pattern can be seen in this sense, this does not exclude a historical fall, as depicted in Genesis 3. Rather, Genesis 3 provides the historical explanation for the universality of human sin. Those who continue to sin and continue to die do so as a result of Adam's sin. So this is pretty clear. The, the objections against this view of Adam uh, in 1 Corinthians and in Romans uh, just really don't stand up on their own. And so I think you have to do um, a lot of scripture twisting in order to make this Work. It's pretty clear to me that the New Testament authors, and of course Paul here uh, specifically, is treating Adam as a historical figure. Uh, it would be a stretch to conclude anything otherwise, as they do, especially just to uh, just to do so in an effort to reconcile with modern science, which changes. All right, we're talking about reinterpreting uh, interpreting the Bible, which does not change in a fashion that dangerously makes sense with one current scientific theory, um, which I'm hopeful will go away. <laughs> uh, will it? I, I don't know. I, I certainly hope that it will, uh, because it doesn't seem to be an accurate picture of the world. And that's what we're concerned with. We are concerned with truth. Okay? Um, the testimony of the rest of the New Testament. Let's take a look at that. Uh, there's no time to really cover this. Of course, there's a lot more, like I said. Uh, but I do want you to see this uh, in summary. This is the author's summary of uh, this section of the book. 
He says, The New Testament authors appeal to the opening chapters of Genesis on issues related to our understanding of sin, the problem of death, the atoning work of Christ, the resurrection from the dead, sexuality of marriage, and issues of race. The gospel itself is impacted by one's view on Adam. If the historical Adam did not exist, then the historical Christ did not need to come to redeem a human race that inherited Adam's sinful nature and guilt. Several pieces of evidence from the New Testament indicate that Paul, Jesus, and other New Testament authors affirmed a historical Adam. So that's where it all ends up. Uh, as far as the New Testament writers go, I mean, it, it certainly looks like we can conclude, you know, with, with a degree of, of reasonable um, certainty that they saw Adam as a historical figure. They were absolutely um, tying back what we know today to be sin and uh, the death that is in our world. They are tying it back just as Genesis 3 describes the events, and we can take comfort in in that. Um, comfort in sin and death? No. Uh, but comfort in the fact that our Bible is reporting to us an accurate history Yes, because if that's an accurate history, then we can go in and take these other areas as we're going to do as we go through this book, science and things of that nature, and uh, read back into there and, and try to find out a meaningful understanding of the world we live in, uh, even the way it was created and the reason why the human condition is how it is. Yes. So that is the uh, New Testament. All right, we're going to move on here to Adam and the church. Let me just say a word, too, as I go through that. Um, and also, I, I look at my notes as we're getting ready to go into an understanding of the church's theology. Um, history, admittedly, is not my uh, strong suit. All right, I, I do study uh, church history a little bit, uh, but not that much. And, and I'm, I'm just being as transparent as I can. Um, I'm not that interested in it. Um, not in the sense that I don't believe it's important. It's just not my area of interest. Um, my area of interest is science. So, um, I'll, uh, I'll add a lot of my own comments uh, in some of these later chapters, but, but these chapters that deal mainly with history, though, are, are going to be a bit dense, especially on um, um, relying on what the authors in the book wrote, because I don't have so much to, to comment on it of my own. Um, you know, these are professors and scholars of New Testament and of church history, and so I guarantee their comments are more beneficial than mine. So uh, I'll provide comments here and there. Um, but a lot of the commentary, um, admittedly, at this point, is going to come from what they have already said. And, uh, of course, in using this as a textbook, uh, you know, we kind of expect that a little bit. So I just kind of wanted to give you a disclaimer on that, um, that uh, this is a good history lesson, but I'm learning as much as you are uh, on this, okay? And so um, if anybody has any comments about that, let me know. If you think I shouldn't do it this way, um, let me know. If you think it's helpful, um, let me know, okay? I, I want to hear from you. Uh, I want to foster a community here, um, all right? I want to talk with you. I'm interested in you. I'm interested in your spiritual walk, and I'm interested in you having the tools you need to defend your faith when the need arises and when the time is at hand, all right? And so that's what I think this is going to help you to do. And it's going to be important to understand where Adam fits in the history of the church, because people argue this against me all the time, um, insofar as especially dealing with the, the creation days. I mean, I have people throwing up arguments about the creation days from uh, 
church fathers and things like that all the time. And of course, as I've mentioned on, on previous podcasts, I, I kind of believe that there's a little bit of a picking and choosing going on there. All right. Um, but because I believe as we're getting ready to demonstrate that there are plenty of church fathers um, and other influential members around that time and leaders around that time who firmly believed in a recent creation, firmly believed in a literal historical Adam, a real fall. Uh, these things were important um, throughout church history. Though I'm not an expert on it, all the studying I've done has most certainly led me to that conclusion. So we're going to look at this here uh, for the remainder of our time. Now, this chapter is written by Dr. Tom Nettles, and he is an MDiv and PhD from Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. And although he is retired, he still serves as the senior professor of historical theology um, at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary there in Louisville, Kentucky. So he has been teaching for quite a while, and uh, he is another well-credentialed man who has something to say about church history and about Genesis, all right? Uh, And here's what he begins by, uh, saying that debates over the nature of the church brought numerous divisions in Reformation Christianity in the 16th and 17th centuries. One of these groups, the English separatists, described their differences with the Anglicans and Puritans in 29 articles of their Confession of Faith. Before the differences, however, they emphasized points of agreement in 16 articles. Central to these commonplace um, commonplaces was commitment to a literal Adam and Eve in their determinative place in the history of the world. When expositors and theologians in historically orthodox denominations adopted the epistemological and philosophical views of naturalistic science, the theological implications created views unrecognizable as historic confessional Christianity. Now that is a profound statement. When expositors and theologians in historically orthodox denominations adopted the epistemological and philosophical views of naturalistic science, the theological implications created views unrecognizable as historic confessional Christianity. So that's what we're dealing with. That's what we're looking at. That's what we're up against as we try to determine where the theology should really fall. And so there are many who have accepted that view. Um, As we'll see here, uh, many have decided that they are going to uh, work off of the presuppositions of natural science and try to make the Bible line up with that. Um, They, for whatever reason, believe that we have the um, necessity to trust the conclusions of modern science, and so we must reinterpret the Bible. Um, I do not quite understand that position. Um, It doesn't seem to be the position that the Bible itself would argue for. The Bible says, let God be true and every man a liar. All right? So I don't think that uh, the flow of interpretation should come from outside the Bible to in. I believe we should flow from inside of the Bible to out and try to make sense of the world that way. To me, that is the only way that it's going to work. And indeed, that is what we see, um, the big paradigm difference between those who would interpret inside and outside. It's night and day. All right. So we believe not only in a high view of scripture, but the highest view of scripture. That's the point. Um, Scripture is the highest view. It is the ultimate authority. The word ultimate just simply means the greatest, the biggest. There There is no greater. There is no greater authority than the Bible. It has the last word in all matters, and that's the way it should be 
treated. So let's take a look at some different time periods. What about Adam before Augustine? Uh, the author says, patristic writers, working from an assumption of the theological correctness of Scripture, fill their comments on the creation, Adam, Eve, uh, and the fall with spiritual discussions and typological relations. They interacted with the pagan philosophies of the day as well as latent heresies and sought to establish a unique sovereignty of God over the creation, the unicity and triunity of God, and his calling all things into being out of nothing. The Genesis account is nothing less than a historical narrative, even though it is much more. That's a profound statement. And very true. It is a historical narrative, but it's also a very theological narrative, all right? It tells us uh, about why the world is the way that it actually is. And this is how many writers before Augustine saw it, all right? Clement of Rome, who lived um, circa AD 96, highlighted the noxious influence of jealousy that has estranged wives from their husbands and annulled the saying of our father Adam, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And from the story of Cain and Abel, he concluded that jealousy and envy brought about a brother's murder. Completely historical. There, there's no syllogism, or excuse me, symbolism rather. There's no allegorical language going on here. Um, Clement completely regarded this text to be a, a full-on historical narrative, and a narrative that um, was indicative of the human condition thereafter. All right, in his dialogue with uh, Trypho the Jew, uh, Justin uh, Martyr made the fall of Satan and Adam as vitally connected to the sin of the race and the coming of Jesus Christ. Quote, he, or Christ, submitted to be born and to be crucified, not because he needed such things, but because of the human race, which from Adam had fallen under the power of death and the guile of the serpent, and each one of which had committed personal transgression. Arrhenius, uh, circa uh, 140 to 202, established a strong connection between Adam and biblical theology. Athanasius, um, around 296 to 373, also explained the incarnation by relating it to a dilemma, quote, created by Adam's fall. God could allow neither his original purpose for humanity as established in the creation of Adam to fail, nor could he fail to execute his word, quote, you shall die. Ambrose and Chrysostom also make clear in their writings their belief of a historical Adam and Eve. So here are some some very, very early church fathers who, um, quite frankly, were adamant about the fact that Adam was historical. These events were um, completely necessary. In other words, they never talked about sin and death as their own um, solitary confines. Um, the fact of the matter is that if Adam was not responsible for these things, then one would really never need to reference Adam um, other than when they were attempting to explain um, uh, or make, a, make a, um, an illustration or an allegory um, concerning sin. Um, you know, it, you know, it, it would use very um, suggestive language, like if you know, well, like just as we saw how a person uh, could have fallen uh, in the beginning, like the Bible describes. You know, th that's the kind of language that would be used. Um, does that make sense to you? Um, when these writers write, they are talking about Adam as a historical person and the fall as a historical event. All right, and them being our parents. And if we just read the Bible. Um, if the plain sense makes good sense, seek no other sense, right? If we just read the Bible the way that it is, 
taking into account the genealogies and things of that nature and coming up with a date, we find a recent creation and a literal historical Adam and Eve who are responsible for the human condition. And that's what these writers seem to agree with. Um, Augustine's uh, own construction of Adam's importance, of course, there's a lot here. Uh, he spends pages and pages and pages talking about this, so we'll have to skip it. But I do want to sum up this section uh, with a few of his quotes. Uh, he says, um, For as from one man, whom God created the, as the first, Augustine observed, the whole human race has descended, some of them to be associated with the good angels and their reward, others with the wicked in punishment. He also says, quote, for as the first immortality which Adam lost by sinning consisted in his not being able to die, Augustine explained, while the last shall consist in his not being able to die, so the first free will. Augustine continued, consisted in his being able not to sin, the last in his not being able to sin. So there's this obvious connection um, and this comparison even drawn by Augustine um, about the historical events that enshrouded Adam and why Christ had to uh, make the difference. And I think this is actually a really, really profound um, um, observation here um, that Augustine is, is making. Um, the fact is that Adam had no choice but to sin, uh, and Christ had no choice but not to sin. And so it's this, it's this contrast that is necessary. In order for Christ to be the one who um, is not being able to sin, there had to be one who was not being able to uh, die without sinning. And so he had free will. Um, and so that is the point. And so somebody had to come in and step into history to uh, swing the pendulum, as it were, and provide for a new paradigm. Now, it's interesting that uh, many people often uh, assume that Augustine has a uh, long ages view in mind when he's talking about Adam. This is just simply not the case, and, and Answers in Genesis has some really good articles out there on this, and, and I'll, I'll maybe put one of those in the show notes, but um, Augustine did not believe in long ages. Augustine believed in a recent creation. Um, Augustine actually had the opposite problem uh, that many old earth creationists do. Augustine believed the creation was instantaneous. And kind of in line with uh, authors like Philo, kind of assumed that the six literal days that we would see were more... Um, uh, mystical and more dealing with the fact that uh, of the perfect number of, of six. And I don't have time to get into all of that, but in other words, he assumed or he surmised rather that the creation was instantaneous and uh, the structure as given was uh, merely just a system put in place by God. So obviously I don't agree with him on that, but he did believe in a recent creation. Um, and of course, I believe in taking the text as it says, six days, uh, seventh day, uh, on the seventh day, God rested. And of course, if we look at Exodus 20.11, that seems to be um, confirmed, and not only confirmed, but also drawn into uh, the picture of our seven-day week. And so I think that makes sense. So Augustine did not have quite uh, the same view um, that uh, that we would hold on the creation days, um, but he certainly believed in a recent creation. 
All right, how about Luther and Calvin? Luther and Calvin. Um, the writer says that Augustine's view of Adam, in varying degrees, uh, dominated the entire stream of theological development through the Middle Ages. After the Council of Orange uh, in 529 condemned semi-Pelagianism, the theological position survived, nevertheless under the development of a highly nuanced discussion of grace. Now, none of these disagreements, to the degree to which Adam's sin had affected his posterity, however, diminished the importance of Adam as historically identifiable head of all humanity. The preachers and theologians of the Reformation went back to a more concentrated and simple Augustinian perception of the results of Adam's fall. So um, there for a while, of course, there was this um, straying away from this Augustinian perception. But when the reformers stepped on the scene, uh, they came in and really dialed back to this Augustinian view of these events. And that's what we're going to look at right now. So um, Luther, for example, who lived from 1483 to 1546, built uh, virtually his entire doctrinal system um, out of the bondage of the will and justification by faith uh, on the historical veracity of Adam and the narrative in Genesis. Um, for example, on the creation of man in God's image, Luther commented that, quote, it is no doubt true that as God delighted in the creation of man, so also he delights in restoring this, his perfect work, to perfection through his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. In his preface to the first chapter of Genesis, he stated clearly his acceptance of the chronological years listed in the genealogical structure and noted, now we know from Moses that about 6,000 years ago, the world was not yet in existence, though of this fact, no philosopher can be convinced. Isn't that interesting? We certainly find that today, but the reformers held this view. Uh, in distinguishing his view from those who speculated that God created all things in a moment, Luther responded that, quote, We have proof that the six days of creation were six natural days, since the text states expressly that Adam and Eve were made on the sixth day. To make his point more strongly, Luther continued with a clear affirmation of more details in the text with the warning, That text permits no meddling. Now, that's really, really interesting. Uh, in a world where we typically see arguments coming from um, the history of the church concerning the fact that these were not six literal days, it was not a recent creation, uh, this seems to show the exact opposite. Uh, Calvin, who lived from 1509 to 1564, also tied his theology into this um, uh, historical reality uh, of Adam and the uh, natural and federal headship of the entire human race. He taught, quote, We learn, therefore, by revelation that the world was created about 6,000 years ago. Many philosophers, shallow and imaginative people, will always have their own answers and avoid what the Holy Spirit teaches us, and it will be thus be incredible to them, quote, that the world was created 6,000 years ago. Ago. Now, in the summary of his institutes, uh, Calvin said, but it is, if it is beyond con uh, controversy that Christ's righteousness and thereby life are ours by communication, it immediately follows that both were lost in Adam, only to be recovered in Christ, and that sin and death crept through Adam, only to be abolished through Christ. These are no obscure words. Many are made, quote, righteous by Christ's obedience as by Adam's disobedience they had been made sinners. Here, then, is the relationship between the two. Adam, implicating us in his ruin, destroyed us with himself, but Christ restores us to salvation by his grace. 
The author uh, concludes on that, that all of theology and the entire biblical scheme of redemption depended on the monogenetic origin of the entire race of mankind, and that the sin of that one person, Adam, explains the origin and pervasive power of sin, is is unquestionably the conviction of John Calvin. If one dismisses Adam as a real historical person, Calvin would see no consistent biblical rationale for Christ as Redeemer. What a significant uh, statement. Now, what about the rest of Reformed Orthodoxy? Of course, there's a long history here. Um, we have uh, men like Wesley, Poole, and Turretin who all accept uh, the biblical narrative of creation and uh, in its most simplest form, and they all view uh, Adam as important. For instance, Turretin viewed the creation of Adam as the most excellent work and the epitome of the whole. Uh, and so that's very important. Remember, we talked before about how Adam was the apex of creation. Um, that is certainly very, very important. He also affirmed that Adam was the first of mortals before whom no man existed and from whom all have sprung. So Turretin, uh, a very influential writer uh, in the Reformation, most certainly agreed with a historical Adam. And um, Wesley, John Wesley said, uh, quote, he created him male and female, Adam and Eve, Adam first out of earth and Eve out of his side. God made one, but one male and one female that all nations of men might know themselves to be made of one blood, descendants from one common stock and might thereby be inspired to love one another. Herman Witsius defined creation as that act of God in which by the all-powerful command of his will he made out of nothing and perfected the whole universe in the space of six days. He gave no place to, quote, natural generation, which proceeds gradually from suitable matter according to the rules of motion. And he detested the theory um, of an explanation of creation as the concurrence of God, quote, with spontaneous emergence into existence by laws of motion. He contended that this was, and I quote, a absurd hypothesis. Concerning the covenants, Witsius also said that this covenant is an agreement between God and Adam, formed after the image of God as the head and root or representative of the whole human race, by which God promised eternal life and happiness to him. If he yielded obedience to all his commands, threatening with the death if he failed, uh, but in the least point, and Adam accepted this condition. Based on what we know about the Reformation and Reformed Orthodoxy, the author argues that absent a historical Adam created by the triune God on the sixth day, the biblical view of redemption would not exist. All right, if that's not enough, how about the Puritans? Jonathan Edwards, uh, 1703 to 1758, gave a distilled view of Puritan, uh, Puritanism, a particular type of Reformed orthodoxy um, concerning the place of Adam in Christian theology. Having no doubt about the six days of creation and the special creation of Adam in the image of God, Edwards viewed this narrative as fundamental to the entirety of Christian theology. A sermon on God's excellencies brought a comparison from Edwards in which he assumed the age of the world to be about 6,000 years. Quote, Neither the earth we stand upon, nor the heavens over our heads, the sun, moon, nor stars, nor the angels of God can claim a duration of 6,000 years. But what is this the duration to the duration of the great God who is from everlasting? Contemplation of Adam and his connections to the whole of biblical theology uh, occupied many entries into Edwards' miscellanies and his notes on the Bible. 
he affirmed that the original created state of Adam involved a disposition of holiness, and that Adam was, quote, perfectly righteous, righteous from the first moment of his existence, and consequently created or brought into existence righteous. Uh, Edwards contended that a coherent biblical theology and a realistic view of the world rests squarely on a literal and fully historical understanding of these chapters. Moving even further in history, Andrew Fuller and Charles Spurgeon, two very uh, influential pastors, of course. Uh, Fuller, um, uh, he uh, was a major force behind the origin of modern foreign missions, and uh, he gave an exposition of the book of Genesis in his church in Kettering and published it in um, 1805. He accepted uh, the entire book as historical narrative, including the account of the creation of the earth and all of its constituent parts, the prototypes of all plants and animals from which all subsequent flora and fauna proceeded, and Adam and Eve. All right. Um, he uh, just his discussion of the prohibition given to Adam and the disobedience that followed showed that Adam's status as federal head of the race in relation to the person and work of Christ assumed the full historicity of the account. Now, this is important. Invoking Romans 5, 12 through 21 and Hebrews 9, 27 through 28, Fuller argued that the original constitution of things provided for the existence of every individual that has since been brought into the world, and that whether man should stand or fall. Adam was the, quote, public head of all his posterity, so that his transgression involved there being transgressors from the womb and alike exposed to death with him. Self. So Fuller, um, Andrew Fuller, his views on this are pretty clear. Uh, what about the Prince of Preachers, um, Mr. Spurgeon? Boy, I sure love uh, Charles uh, Spurgeon. His preaching is just um, absolutely incredible, one of my favorites. And uh, just to um, kind of summarize his view here, uh, he observed, quote, If you and I had each one sinned for himself or herself apart from Adam, our case would have been hopeless. But inasmuch as we fell representatively in Adam, it prepared for us the way to rise representatively in the second Adam, Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. So he depended without reservation on the historical reality of Adam and his representative status as the first man and federal head of the race. His sermons, uh, filled with the theology of the covenants, could not exist in their preached form apart from his firm commitment to the historical truth of Adam's fall. Uh, so he most certainly tied Adam back to a historical figure. Uh, this was no um, allegory for him. He fully understood these events and its um, effects on the rest of the world. Now, I'm closing here, here I kind of want to... Um, Look at something that the author wrote. Uh, he's talking about William Newton Clark, um, and apparently this man was very influential in saying goodbye to um, to Adam in the church. And he saw a, an amalgamation of evolution with Christian theology. All right, this guy he lived from 1841 to 1911, and uh, according to the author, he he worked at this with conviction uh, during the 20 year bridge from 1890 when he became professor of theology at Colgate University until his death in 1911. His book, 60 Years with the Bible, described his movement from traditional conservatism to an exuberant, optimistic liberalism. Liber liberalism, excuse me. He said, uh, quote, I began as a child must begin, with viewing the Bible in a matter of my father's day, but I'm ending with a view that was never possible until the large work of the 19th century upon the Bible had been done. 
His view of scripture began its fall when the apparent contradiction between the Bible and modern geology challenged him. See, he's reading outside into the Bible. He concluded that the world of facts and the world of religion operated on different planes. The doctrine of a 6,000-year-old earth was, quote, forever irreconcilable with geology and impossible of belief. Well, we know now today that that is just not true. We can completely reconcile Genesis 1 through 11 and the 6,000 years earth uh, with modern geology. That's absolutely no problem at all, and many have been working on this. And so uh, this is just really sad. Uh, you know, I just kind of want to close out on this. Um, Clark believed that in dismissing Adam, he ridded Christianity of a fatal embarrassment. An Anglican contemporary of Clark, noting this pernicious courtesy in all of uh, modernism, wrote, quote, The attempt of modernism to save the supernatural in the second part of the Bible by mythicalizing the supernatural in the first part is as unwise as it is fatal. What Clark achieved was not a presently renewed spirituality and deepened repentance, but an explanation of sin that removed its moral foundation. And here's the present challenge that we're dealing with. William Newton Clark was more optimistic than he had a right to be. In trying to salvage a Christianity purified of myth and legend with evolutionary thought as purgative, he demonstrated that the task is impossible. The reconstruction becomes something entirely distinct losing all the defining features of historic Christianity. And that's where we're at today, folks. That's where we're at today. Today we are seeing that the church is reading evolution into the Bible. And here's my concern, as I've mentioned before. When evolutionary theory goes out of style, what do we do then? I can only hope and pray that uh, the answer to that question is that we go back once again as a church and return to the teaching of the Bible it's going to it's it's obviously going to come to a head one day. Is God going to be mad because some of us got creation wrong? You know, I don't know. I don't think so. But I believe he could be. Because this teaching is is in my view and the view of many others very detrimental to the church and um and, and to the future understanding of historic Christianity and what the New Testament writers believed, what the early church fathers believed. And, um, and I think that we are wise to trust their opinions. Um, we're talking about guys who lived in the Bible. They didn't just do Google searches because they couldn't when they wanted an answer to their questions. They had to dig and dig and dig in the truths of the Word of God. And they seemed to surmise that this world was created just thousands of years ago, experienced a real fall with a real Adam and Eve who was responsible for the sin of all mankind. And my prayer is that we get back to that teaching and start evangelizing the world in such a way where we tell them the real history of the world, why they need a Savior, and build from there the fact that Christ came into this world to do for them what they could not possibly do for themselves. Let's pray. And I hate to end on such a sad note, but I believe there's hope. This book, this book is, is built on the fact that there is hope, that there's an answer to this problem. And as we go through, and even as we continue through next week, we're going to start to start, uh, start to see some of that hope. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you that you'd allow us to study your word We pray, Father, that you would just help us to 
interpret your word properly. Uh, the way, Lord, that uh, the biblical writers uh, meant for it to be interpreted, Lord, the way that you meant for it to be interpreted. I pray you'd use your spirit, Lord, to speak to us and to help us to understand that we can trust your word from the very first words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would just help us to see uh, that it's so important that we get this right, that we understand the fact that there was a real fall, a historical fall in which humanity was messed up, Lord, which uh, brought the need in for a Savior. And we thank you for being that Savior, for providing that lamb, for providing that sacrifice for a bunch of sinners, just unworthy and unclean. We thank you for your sacrifice, Father, and we certainly love you. We ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. I appreciate you listening this week uh, to the Creation Academy, and we will see you next week. And um, I'm not exactly sure I don't have my notes in front of me on what we're going to be talking about next week. Um, but either way, I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be a good time. And uh, I hope you all have a blessed week and uh, a good Christmas uh, as it's coming up. And so we will see you next time right here on the Creation Academy. Thanks and bye-bye.